G'day folks and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. This is the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher back with you once again and waiting patiently at the other end of the Skype connection is Grant McHeron. G'day Grant. Hey Steve, how you going mate? Well mate, it's a, I'm doing well and it's a, it's a historic day as we record the podcast tonight. That's correct. At five o'clock in the morning Melbourne time, the uh, Boeing 787 finally got itself off the ground and flew around for a shortened test flight due to weather. They uh, had to cut it short to get back to Boeing Field, but they went from, um, from I believe it was Everett, and flew around to Boeing Field. And um, sorry if I got that wrong, probably find out that Everett is Boeing Field, but that'll, that'll be me. But yeah, they uh, took off from one field, landed at the other, and uh, there were a lot of people there tweeting like mad and telling us everything that was going on. It was great. Uh, I woke up in the morning and flipped through all the tweets and was able to relive it. Hopped on, saw a few videos online, went, woohoo, it's finally flown. But uh, hopefully I can still keep my um, you know, aeroneuropycosis card because I didn't get up early to watch it. Yes, we watched it live. There was uh, some video on uh, Channel 7 this morning, uh, a little bit of audio of which I'll play you in a minute, see if you can spot the fault. And that'll be good news for Qantas, uh, in Qantas Group who have got a lot of these aircraft on order. And uh, be no doubt, uh, I'm sure every Qantas tech crew member and, and interested party will have been watching with great interest to see the result of of this flight a five and a half hour test flight so uh, it was it was actually shorter than that it uh, was supposed to be a nice long test flight but they had to cut it short due to weather it was only an hour and a quarter or so mm, well the weather did look shocking yeah okay so uh, this week on the podcast we've got a, uh, a really interesting interview coming up that we uh, recorded a night or two back with Sarge Ahmed of uh, Fleet Buzz Editorial a uh, really interesting blog that uh, really drills down and talks about really specific issues to do with the aviation industry Sarge is based in London and spends a fair bit of time over in Dubai and around the Middle East. We had a really, really interesting discussion with him. One of the best interviews that we've done so far, I think. Really, really interesting stuff. So that'll be coming up in a little while. Also, we have David Vanderhoof coming along with his uh, This Week in Australian Aviation History. Which is uh, actually, I've got to say, last week in Australian Aviation History because like a complete dork, I had it all ready to go and forgot to include it in episode 19 when I was racing to get that out before we did the road trip. So sorry, David. You did all that effort to get it to us. Steve prepped it and I forgot to include it in episode 19 mere maxima culpa there you go but look on the bright side david means we don't have to hassle you this week for an aviation history segment hey yeah spin it good hey not only am i becoming good at podcasting i could be a spin doctor i should go and work for kevin rudd oh dude don't go into politics you'll sure i don't think me and kevin rudd would get along too well grant do you think <laughs> mate you'd be spinning faster than a gyro compass i think he'd be spinning me right out of his office <laughs> I get that feeling Okay, folks I'm going to play a little audio clip That we heard on Channel 7 Sunrise this morning It's Mark Beretta talking Who is a self-confessed airplane junkie Grant, I think you ought to listen to this podcast A little bit more often Mm, See if you can spot the fault Maybe we should get him on to interview as well Hmm, Maybe we should Well, he might not want to come on After we have a go at him about this This is one of the great moments of aviation history And I'll explain why I mean, there there are some great aircraft of the world The 747 is one Um, The Airbus is another And in a few years' time We're going to be flying on this aircraft for the next 20, 30, maybe 40 years. So and it's made of plastic, isn't it? Exactly right. It's 50% polycarbonate. So if you can imagine carbon-reinforced resin, okay? So forget the metal. It's only half metal. All the aircraft we've been on so far have been 90% metal. So all of a sudden we've stepped into a new realm where the aircraft is lighter, it's stronger. Uh, it means you can have things like bigger windows. The environment inside the aircraft is much better in that you'll get better quality oxygen. So you'll get rid of or certainly reduce things like jet lag. 
Well, yes, all those things are wonderful. Grant, um, did you spot the what I consider a fault there? Oh, it wouldn't happen to have anything to do with polycarbonate, would it? I'm telling you, mate, if that thing's made out of polycarbonate, I'm thinking of one of two things. Either, number one, I'm never going to fly on that plane, or, number two, if the polycarbonate is that good, then I'm recladding my entire house in the snuff. <laughs> I think maybe he meant carbon fibre. I think he did, yes. Thermastic polymers, according to Wikipedia, easily worked, moulded, thermoformed, and very widely used in modern chemical industry. Hmm... Anyway, but uh, a lot of the other stuff he said there was, uh, you know, pretty spot on. And this is a revolutionary aircraft, and it's, it's certainly the way Boeing is looking at taking itself in the future. So yeah, it's a historic day. I'm, I, for one, am glad that the uh, things finally got off the ground and is now in the test flight phase, and uh, long may its uh, success continue. Yeah, I'm really going to be watching the testing quite closely and seeing what comes out because, yeah, this is this is where the to use the phrase rubber hits the road. Where the 787 has to prove itself in some major ways, especially. In in terms of how much it can carry, how far, for what economy. It's already a little overweight, so it'll be interesting to see how well it comes through on the promises Boeing have been making up till now. So uh, we'll be watching that very carefully because, hey, the A380 was overweight as well. They redesigned the seats in it to make them lighter. Some airlines even uh, talked of taking all the magazines out, things like that. So if it's too heavy by lots, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, so we actually discussed the 787 uh, Dreamliner aircraft a bit later on in the aircraft with Sarge. Just bear in mind, folks, that we actually recorded it two nights ago, so... The yep. aircraft hadn't flown at that stage, but no, he's got some very interesting observations on that and the A380 and plenty of others. So uh, that'll be coming along in about 20 minutes or so from now. It'll be definitely interesting when the uh, 787 goes live with the Jetstar group, of which Qantas is a part. When the A330s were first introduced to Qantas, they were referred to as the princesses because only certain people were allowed to touch them. <laughs> that was that was the name that all the um, line engineers had for them. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what name comes out for the Plastic Fantastic. Plastic Fantastic was the A320 series, so um, I've already heard people calling it the um, Fan Plastic aircraft. Oh, so it's really interesting to see. And folks, if you'd like to uh, send some suggestions into playing crazy down under at gmail.com, we might read a selection of the better ones next week. Yeah, the better ones are usually wrapped in a uh, donation. Oh, did I say that? Okay, Grant, our next couple of stories here sort of go along this theme. Computer problems, computer problems, computer problems. We'll start first with Jetstar on December the 14th. Jetstar had a uh, computer problem that knocked their system offline for a number of hours. That's right. For about three hours, starting at 4am, Jetstar uh, check-in system went offline leading to um, some delays of up to 90 minutes for some of their flights but uh they did manage to get it recovered reasonably quickly and were back on a, a backup system. This was a fault with their uh, third party that provides the check-in system. So this uh, went all around the country. But fortunately, they did. They were able to switch over to a backup process and system and get things running until the primary one could come back up online. But very interesting, a little bit of a delay. I've, some of you may remember a month or so ago, we had the uh, outage, a major outage in New Zealand when the IBM-hosted system used by Air New Zealand went kaput and was out for over six hours on the last day of school holidays in New Zealand, causing massive chaos and leading Rob Fife to uh, make some disparaging comments about mm. IBM's ability to uh, be professionally providing services. Well, this one was uh, Jetstar, so some delays, but they managed to get over it. didn't cause too many problems. However, the day later, poor Virgin here in Melbourne had a telecoms failure. Uh, the company that supplies the telecommunications wound up with a damaged cable. Still not 100% sure of whether that was the famous backhoe going through the cable or not. Mm. That's a very common one that you hear all around the all around the world. That has caused complete chaos. It's totally taken the uh, 
Virgin's ability to check in aircraft here in Melbourne. It took them completely offline. They did manage to get it working again towards the end of the day. However, it's caused such a backlog that um, they've still got passengers two days later who are unable to leave Melbourne. They've had to put some passengers up in hotels and may even have to put them up in a hotel again a second night. Yeah, somebody at Telstra's going to have a huge, big, big uh, please explain notice on their desk pretty shortly. 50 flights had to be cancelled, almost 50 flights had to be cancelled yesterday. Yeah. Uh, delayed up to almost 6,000 passengers because uh, they had to go back to manual check-ins. So uh, naturally, this cause, while the problem's down here in Melbourne, it does have a flow on to other other cities that they fly to, particularly Sydney and Hobart. So yeah, as you said, Telstra definitely have a uh, please explain. It'll be interesting to find out what did cause the actual fault to that cable. Good to see, though, that uh, Virgin Blue was putting uh, affected passengers up in hotels where they needed to, and we're also uh, trying to rebook um, urgent cases on other airlines, which is a good thing to do. Hello, Tiger Airways. Are you listening? <laughs> and we've got a few audio clips here from some passengers who were perhaps not too impressed, and one at the end here who was actually quite diplomatic. Uh, about three hours, I think, so far. Hard work with the youngster. Oh, yeah, he's going crazy, so not that um, impressed. But for me, it would be quicker to drive to Sydney from here. Oh, I think it's terrible, but it's, you know, it's not Virgin's fault. It's whoever hosts their service. Yep, and that's true. The gentleman, actually, the gentleman there who was saying that uh, it would be quicker for him to drive from Melbourne to Sydney, he was probably right. It's about a twelve-hour drive. Oh, ten hours. Yeah, well, yeah, depends on which one of us is driving. If Steve yeah, was driving, it'd be a twelve-hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> if I was, if I was driving, it'd be ten hours. And if I didn't care about who got the tickets, it'd be eight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it was. They they did play the line uh, very very solidly yesterday in all the media. Their spokeswoman Amanda Bulger, uh, who was leading the charge there on all the uh, radio networks that I was listening to, uh, very squarely pointing the finger straight at Telstra and saying, you know, it's, it's not our fault, it's you know, it's their fault, something's wrong with their system, and uh, we're doing our best to look after passengers in the meantime. So uh, I think they, there would have been a lot of particularly unhappy people, but uh, you know, I think nobody's in much doubt as to uh, where the problem lies in this uh, situation, and uh, you know, let's let's hope they get it fixed quickly. Uh, Alan News tonight on the television news that I was watching tonight, and uh, as we're recording this, it's about 24 hours after the event. There's still thousands of people who are uh, not where they should be. So it's going to take Virgin uh, quite a few days to clear that backlog. Yep, and uh, this is definitely a, a um, advert for having duplicate comms links by the sounds of it, uh, usually in separate conduits too. Okay, moving on. Our next article, Grant, deals with the uh, famous, or depending on which way you want to look at it, infamous, Dr. Jeffrey Edelston. He's been involved in a uh, helicopter crash at Moorabbin Airport recently. That's right. Uh, on his first solo, uh, Dr. Ed- oh, sorry, former Dr. Edelston has uh, some. He has a pilot's license in fixed wing, and he's currently transitioning to rotary. He was doing his first ever uh, solo, and apparently was on the uh, takeoff. And uh, according to the instructor, basically still contacting the ground. The air aircraft yawed to the left on the ground and then rolled to the right and wound up upside down after ripping all the rotors off. So Edelson's actually quite lucky that uh, he got out of that with uh, no major injuries at all. Yep, now this happened uh, a couple of days ago. The first article that we'll read from here and spot the mistake here is by Wayne Flower. It appeared on the uh, heraldsun.com.au website, said that he'd been taking... uh, he, as in Edelston, had been taking twice-weekly flying lessons and was attempting to take off on the centre runway at about 10.15am when the crash happened. Now, uh, Wayne Flower, if you're going to uh, report on things like this, you might want to check, first off, 
the helicopter wouldn't have been taking off from any runway, and secondly, if it was, it wouldn't have been taking off on the centre runway at Moorabbin because there is no centre runway at Moorabbin. There's a 17 left, a 17 right, a 35 left, a 35 right, and there's a few others as well. No centre runway, probably from the centre pad, maybe, Grant, would you think? Uh, well, there is that duty grade taxiway right up the middle of the runways that used to be a runway. Well, it's uh, not now. It's, it's a very wide taxiway that uh, we... Moorabbin did used to have centre runway, uh, 117 and so on. But, uh, yeah, no, these days it's mostly for... F- it's very uh, very handy for doing a quick transit from one end to the other when the winds shift. <laughs> yeah, I think it just annoys me, journalists, getting uh, things like this wrong and probably springs from me working in public transport where they're always misreporting everything. So, But, yeah, yeah that uh, yeah, just a little pet peeve of mine. But, yeah, interestingly that uh, Dr Edison, and we've got a bit of an audio clip that I'll play in a minute, uh, he was actually coming right out and saying, oh, it was a mechanical fault. Um, probably ought not to be saying that quite yet because the ATSB yeah. will be looking at this and they'll make that determination. Grant, I'll just play this audio for you. Jeffrey Edelston walked away from the airport terminal claiming to be uninjured offering a brief explanation of what went wrong and what went through his mind oh, shit does happen <laughs> i was upside down and uh well i can see was broken glass above me and uh, the instructor um, pulled me out and i'm fine just after 10 o'clock this morning, Edelson's flying instructor stepped out of the helicopter and walked away. It was to be the ex-doctor's first solo flight. The chopper lifted and then sank back onto the ground before tilting sideways. Edelston is an experienced fixed-wing pilot and still intends to complete his helicopter training, but he won't be back in the air for a little while yet. I enjoy it so much that I think that probably in a couple of weeks I'll be saying, oh, let's go again. I'll tell you what, Grant, they say you learn something new every day, and uh, I certainly did out of that. I actually thought he was a rotary wing pilot already, um, and apparently he's only a fixed wing pilot. I remember back in the height of his uh, wealth and fame back in the 1980s, particularly when he owned the Sydney Swans there, he was uh, flying around in a, I'm pretty sure it was a Bell Jet Ranger at the time, but, uh, you know, I actually was always of the impression he was flying that himself, but uh, it must have been somebody else flying it for him. Yeah, I'd say, uh, like Lindsay Fox, he had a pilot. (laughs) Mm. Well, I guess he could have afforded it back then. Yeah, no, if anyone's wondering what former doctor or ex-doctor means, uh, he was, unfortunately for him, struck off the register due to getting into some trouble. The aircraft involved was a Robinson R44 Charlie Lima X-ray. Uh, interestingly enough, now, of course, we all know that uh, Dr. Edelston has uh, recently had a rather lavish uh, wedding ceremony at Crown Casino. One of the uh, stunts that he pulled at that uh, was uh, to have the Robinson R22 helicopter inside at the Crown Ballroom or wherever it was at Crown Casino there that uh, he had his ceremony. And that was this helicopter now. It had been uh, pulled to bits and reassembled for the event and then pulled to bits and reassembled again at the airport. So I'm sure that will be a, uh, a focus of uh, the investigation for the agency. TSB, uh, you know, insofar as uh, how this um, uh, helicopter was uh, put back together. Don't know that it'll ever fly again. Uh, our friends over there at the MFB all turned up and uh, soaked it in what I would presume would be a uh, copious amount of A-class foam. So uh, <laughs> I don't think that'll be, uh, that engine will be uh, in any, or any of that uh, helicopter for that matter, will be in uh, much <laughs> much shape to uh, do much else but end up at Sims Metal. Indeed. It's a write-off by the sounds of it. Okay, Grant, uh, our next story here is uh, an update on the Delta V, the continuing saga in a long story of two airlines that just want to work together. How's that sound, mate? Well, that sounds pretty good, but work may be the wrong four-letter word, but anyhow... How about something uh, like, it was an airline? No, <laughs> I don't have that big movie American <laughs> voice. An airline in a world gone mad. In a world gone mad, that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, well, uh, thanks to Dan the Man Webb, who uh, sent us a link to the media release from uh, V Australia and Delta Airlines. This is not the full Delta V getting into bed together between Delta and V Australia. This is more Delta and V Australia getting up to some heavy petting on the couch. Uh, they're not fully in bed, but they are um, sharing frequent flyer points, lounges, and code share agreements. This is interesting because, uh, of course, Singapore has just announced that it is getting out of bed with Delta and is no longer going to share frequent flyer points with Delta. And, well, surprise, surprise, that's because Virgin's come in and taken them. What we're seeing here is that uh, Delta and V Australia are going to share their lounges. If you earn frequent flyer points on one, you can reciprocal cash them in on the other and vice versa. And uh, it's really going to have a big, big help for V Australia with their Velocity uh, Frequent Flyer program that's part of the Virgin Blue group. You gain Velocity Frequent Flyer points by flying on V Australia, Virgin Blue and Pacific Blue. Now you can also gain them on Delta and cash them in on Delta. So it's making travel to the US for Australians look pretty sexy now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, the uh, the regulatory uh, permission, if you like, from the US DOT still hasn't been forthcoming. The ACCC over here in Australia has given it the go-ahead. Uh, we're still not sure when the uh, you know the US authorities are going to uh, allow this to become a full-on you know a fait accompli, I guess. Yeah, well, by the looks of things, I'd say that uh, they're getting ready to move off the couch. The bed may be being fluffed up. They're just waiting on the uh, American authorities to say go for it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch where this one goes and uh, see what the impact is. Uh, already we're seeing Qantas hemorrhaging big time on the Pacific. That used to be the, one of their cash cows. It's not anymore. Some serious competition happening on that route, which as a consumer is a wonderful thing. Interesting. And we heard this mentioned on the Airplane Geeks podcast too, uh, with the other operator across the Pacific being uh, United Airlines. And uh, they look like they've signed some agreements uh, this week to uh, replace many of their long haul aircraft. Uh, some of their, well, a lot of their 747s look like they're on the way out over the next few years. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, if anything, that they'll be operating uh, across the Pacific. Uh, well, they, for instance, they're going to be picking up, I think, uh, 25 A350s. Will they perhaps be operating those or will they pull out of this market altogether given that uh, there's so much more competition on the Trans-Pacific route now? Well, I know I have said in the past that it was probably going to be um, United that uh, loses on this one and does actually pull out, but you never know. They've got a lot of, uh, a lot of other routes they can use to prop this one up if it gets even more bloody but uh, I think one of the things you're probably more likely to see is uh, Qantas actually bringing a few Jetstar flights on if they can it's well, they sure, they're saying they're no longer going to Jetstarize Qantas but yeah, I was it's just going to make that point yeah of course uh, of course Alan Joyce has said there will be no further Jetstarization of Qantas yeah but what's happening is that additional what they're doing is that anything additional or new is going to Jetstar and uh, from discussions with people on the inside at the uh, office environment as opposed to in the um, in the air side all new staff are being put on Jetstar type contracts and uh, yeah it's Qantas is moving more and more towards the whole concept of uh, of making Jetstar the main aspect of it because hey look at it Qantas is hemorrhaging but Jetstar is making a profit it was one of the few things that helped keep uh, the whole Qantas group afloat this uh, last financial year yeah I think so and just as a side issue while we sort of sidetracked onto the the issue of the Trans-Pacific route the other interesting player here uh, which is, has become a lot more interesting in, in recent months or, or you know over the course of this year at least is Air New Zealand who as we've spoken about on previous episodes 
seem to be really, really shifting the way they market themselves and the way they operate. I wonder how they will be looking at, um, you know, the, the Trans-Pacific issue. Uh, I don't, they don't operate uh, direct across from Melbourne to Los Angeles, but, uh, you know, you can still get some pretty competitive deals if you're prepared to travel via Auckland from uh, Melbourne or Sydney. Well, uh, in New Zealand, we're one of the first to complain about the whole Delta V situation. So, uh, yeah, they are concerned about it and uh, they do see it impacting their ability to make a buck. So, uh, are they on the list for 787s? They would be, yes. wouldn't they? Yeah. Yep, the Kiwis are going to get the 787, yes. Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience experience. If you can't get enough of AirplaneGeeks.com, try Plane Crazy Down Under. And then come back and listen to AirplaneGeeks.com again. Hi, this is Matt Hall, Red Bull Aeros Pilot number 95. So you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under. And welcome back, folks. Our next segment here is the interview that we did uh, recently with Saj Ahmed from uh, London. Saj is a journalist, and he runs uh, FleetBuzzEditorial.com. He's also involved with uh, FleetBuzz.com before that. Pop over and have a look at that site, uh, Grant. He, he has some really uh, interesting articles. He, he focuses in on a particular issue at one time and just goes for broke and uh, invites comments and participation in his online community. And, uh, yeah, we've got a, a, we did a really good interview with him. Yeah, no, it was good fun and the uh, yeah definitely the comments on fleet buzz editorial the comments he gets on his articles are just great They're, it's a really it's not just a slanging match although the, the do arguments do come up but uh, the people are pretty well informed and present their arguments reasonably well and it's not quite a mudslinging match. It's more a, um, well, so far from what I've seen over the time I've been following uh, Fleet Buzz Editorial, there's some reasonably constructive arguments in there. Excellent. So uh, we'll just hop into the interview now and uh, enjoy. Joining us on the line tonight from London, England is Saj Ahmed. G'day, Saj. Nice to meet you. Good evening and good afternoon or good morning, wherever you're listening from. Yeah, it's, it's always fun trying to figure out what time people are going to listen to this. Uh, so it's like, good, hello and have a great temple di- diurnal anomaly, yes. Now, our listener uh, up in there in Sydney, Mike Williamson, has been asking us to have a talk to Sarge for quite some time and we're, we're glad that uh, our schedules have finally um, matched up. And Sarge, uh, you've just had a new arrival in your household, so we really do appreciate uh, you spending some time with us this evening. Oh, it's no problem, no problem. It's a ple- pleasure to be here. Let's kick it off, Sarge, by uh, if you can tell us all a bit about yourself. Well, I've, I've been uh, researching aviation and aerospace for the best part of 10 or 15 years now, uh, and I've kind of put it into the uh, what you would call media limelight with Fleepers Editorial. It initially started off with uh, creating a forum for aviation discussion with a couple of colleagues, one in the US and another in Australia, as it happens. Uh, uh, that was called fleetbuzz.com, which still is running, but it's 
executed by somebody else now. And as a spin-off from that, I, I run the Flippers editorial, which is uh, my own perspective on aviation, defense, airlines, and the whole industry as uh, as a whole. As you can see by some of the comments that I get pretty regularly on, on, on the editorial, it, it always spawns interesting discussions about whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> and, if, and also between... Uh, you know, the various respondents. Uh, I try to stay away from uh, doing daily kind of uh, news bulletins, as it were. I'd rather discuss one topic for a few days and then update that way. Uh, it gives people a chance to discuss something and air their, air their opinions. There are plenty of other blogs which always do day to day and uh, updating and breaking news things. So I'm not really competing with them. I'm, I'm happy in my own little niche. Yeah, you mentioned that you're getting a lot of comments there, and I've read, I've read a few of them, and it's it is quite an interesting site for comments. That's for sure. That's that's not like oh, you suck. It's it's very educated comments. And, and I think that's part of part of the reason why I try not to do um, everyday kind of articles on there. Yeah. A, it's 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 too hard to do because you want to keep the readership involved. And uh, based on past experience from a lot of the comments that I've had on previous articles, uh, the readership seems content to want to have one issue up for a number of days so that they can discuss it to their heart's content. So so I, I kind of run with that. Uh, and it's just easy to, to control as well, especially now that, uh, A, I've got more on my plate to do anyway. And uh, also we're coming to the end of the year where people are kind of winding down and getting ready for Christmas and the holiday season. Uh, let, let's be honest, who really wants to be writing on a blog and want to be reading a blog? I <laughs> know uh, I, I certainly don't want to be doing it. I, I probably only will do another couple more uh, for, for this year and that that's it, and I probably won't do anything again until January. You may be yeah. surprised. There could be a few people out there going, oh, "I'm just going to relax and hop on and read." <laughs> I know I have a well. Th- well this is the thing. I'll, I'll put I'll put something up there that will certainly spur people to in a commenting and and read. But uh, you know, uh, Boeing and Airbus will have their uh, annual shutdowns in Christmas time, so there won't True. be an awful lot of news post seven eight seven first flight. Although it'll start up again in January when uh, you know the countdown for the seven four seven first flight mm-hmm. starts again. So th- there's a, a good two or three week hiatus in there. Well, one of the things that we've been talking to you about recently, you, uh, you've just come back from Dubai. Uh, you're at the air, uh, yeah. big Dubai air show over there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that was? Yeah, in the first couple of days, you got the impression that uh, compared to the last two Dubai air shows, there was a lot less in the way of uh, massive people. Uh, people volume was significantly lower. Uh, however, there did seem to be a big military presence given uh, you know the sensitivity of the region and obviously a, uh, a big emphasis on military defense deals uh, taking a precedence ahead of commercial, given the downturn that we have in the commercial sector. And that was re- uh, you know reflected well by the low quantity of orders, you know the actual sales volumes of the deals done in Dubai in 2009 were you know almost 90 percent down on 2007 so uh, the, you, you got the impression there that uh, the Dubai air show gave a very good reflection of the state of the industry and uh, we didn't really see that at Paris that was still rather successful by comparison but uh, Dubai gave the impression that uh, you know the brakes on the industry are, are you know firmly on the foot on the pedal and there's a long way to go before we see anything in terms of a meaningful meaningful recovery before we get back to where we were when this downturn occurred yeah, there was there was uh, some word out on the on the nets about people were expecting uh, the Middle East would be a uh, strong purchaser of aircraft going ahead still uh, because of the fuel money and things like that money for oil. Uh-huh. So I think it took a few people by surprise that the uh, volumes were down 
quite so much. Is, is that your feeling? Absolutely. And it, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the other things that you need to consider is that if you look over the last four years, uh, the, the three big main players in the Middle East, Qatar Airways, Etihad and, and Emirates, have placed significant orders. Uh, that, that can only go on for so long because ultimately they need to take delivery of these airplanes and they want to put them in service and use them. Uh, so th- there's only so much they can order and put on to Airbus and Boeing's uh, backlog. So until these airplanes are delivered, I think it's going to be another three or four years before we see any kind of meaningful uh, sizable numbers that we've seen in the past from these guys. Uh, maybe the only outstanding one you'll probably see is Qatar Airways when they uh, launch a low-cost airline, which I think is inevitable. Uh, so maybe they will order 30 to 50 narrow bodies. And there are rumors already that uh, the 52A320s on the Airbus's order book for November are probably theirs. Okay. So uh, we'll probably have to wait quite a, a number of years before we see any kind of big orders again from the Middle East. But at the same time, I think the interesting thing we've got to watch out for with these three big Middle East carriers is whether they defer any of their wide-body orders uh, within in the next few years. Because obviously, I think that's going to be a uh, very big indicator of how traffic movement and their plans for O&D traffic, um, which their business models are based, uh, will uh, pan out in the next couple of years. Yeah, well, it, it, um, Emirates just took delivery of their sixth A380 in the last couple of days. So that's uh, that's good to see that they're still plowing on, especially given the problems of the Dubai world that um, I'm hearing that they may actually wind up putting Emirates as collateral to bail out Dubai. That, that's, that's a possibility, but personally, I don't think that that's going to happen. D- Dubai World has, you know, uh, assets and debts, uh, you know, far beyond the scope of what Emirates is actually worth. Uh, it just wouldn't make sense to uh, kind of make a sacrificial lamb of something that is actually making money. Hmm. Um Without, without getting into the semantics of, uh, you know, uh, Emirates cost base, you know, the, the fact that they've made a profit every year since uh, 1986 uh, is some testimony to the way they've actually managed to run the airline. I'm yep. just not sure that uh, uh, Sheikh Ahmed uh, uh, is, is going to want to put Emirates on the line to uh, kind of bankroll something else. I think what you'll see uh, within the next, uh, I think it's 60 days, Dubai World has to come up with a significant payment for um, its outstanding loans. And I think you'll see a default on that. I just don't see that Emirates is going to be put up as collateral just yet, if at all. But that, that's my own opinion. Yeah. It would, cer- would certainly be a first if an airline wound up as collateral. It's normally the other way around. Absolutely, and 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 I think and again with with Dubai World because uh, they are not directly connected, even though the ownership structures ultimately do go back to the ruler of Dubai. Uh, I just don't see what uh, rationale would want to make him make that decision and connect the two together. It, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, well, I think everything in Dubai comes back to the ruling family, doesn't it? In, in one way or another, yes, it does. And you could even argue that uh, Emirates and Etihad are, are distant relatives through their uh, bloodlines back to the. Uh, <laughs> of the ruler of the kingdom who sits in Abu Dhabi. So, but, but again, you know, I'm of the opinion that I just don't think that it would happen. If it was going to happen, it would have happened many, many months ago prior to all of this coming out. Uh, obviously, a preemptive move to uh, protect Dubai World's interests would have been much more of a uh, sound strategy rather than having the world's media over the last two weeks pound into everything that begins with a D and ends in an I. So um, <laughs> I, I just don't see that that's going to happen anytime soon, if at all. But um, I, I could be wrong, and I, I, but I still stand by my assertion at the moment. We've seen a great big uh, influx here in the last couple of years of uh, carriers from the Middle East coming into Australia, Sarge, particularly, uh, obviously, Emirates and Etihad. Now, this week, uh, Qatar Airlines started operating flights using 777 aircraft down here to Australia. How would you compare Qatar Airways, uh, you know, versus the other two, Emirates and Etihad? Well, Etihad and, em- and Emirates don't have the five-star rating that um, Qatar has, and um, I- I'm personally a big critic of Qatar Airways anyway. Um, but uh, irrespective of that, 
I think what you'll find is that uh, Qatar Airways is going to be always chasing, playing the chasing game compared to um, the other two. The, the reason being is that if you look at uh, the uh, demographics of the Middle East, uh, the non-Arab national content who are actually living in that region, and obviously uh, even to a certain extent uh, capita per GDP per head, it is probably uh, better within the United Arab Emirates than it is within Qatar. And there's also the fact that Qatar has always been playing catch-up in terms of snaring people from around the globe compared to the United Arab Emirates. Now, you know, Emirates has a couple of flights out of Heathrow every day using the A380 and, uh, you know, tons of 777s from around about six destinations in the UK, taking people all around through Dubai and onwards to, you know, areas like where you guys live and down in Australia and beyond. And I think that until Qatar Airways has uh, that kind of same market penetration, they're going to be a fringe player for a long time to come. Yeah, they've certainly been engaging in some pretty heavy media advertising here, I guess, obviously, since they're a new player in the market here. The aircraft that they're operating down here have they invested in more aircraft to be able to do that or are they just using ex- their existing fleet and uh, somehow rescheduling things, do you know? I think what they're actually doing at the moment is probably trying to take on as much metal as they can so they can actually increase volumes in uh, frequencies. Their yield strategy is probably a lot different than compared to uh, Emirates and Etihad who obviously have a big emphasis on first class cabins and uh, the 777 that was on display at the Statics Park on at the Dubai Air Show only had a uh, business and economy class cabin and I'm guessing that's a 200 LR that they use yeah, to deploy yeah. into Australia. So that, that gives you an indication already that uh, they're, they're basing their uh, strategy on volume and not on yield. Obviously, there's an argument to be made that you cannot make uh, enough profit or, or meaningful income through volume alone, but they're trying to negate that by using the most fuel-efficient aircraft around on those routes. And until they get their A380s, uh, you know, they'll probably want to then uh, shuffle around what they have in terms of uh, airplanes and then expand again into the U.S. and beyond. So th- they've got a bit of a waiting game to go on. And again, to this, to a certain extent, this applies to Emirates as well, who ultimately want to deploy A380s wherever they have 777s today. So uh, you know, th- they're going to have a bit of a waiting game on their hands, but I think that they'll be content with getting some penetration and more uh, media awareness in the in, in the local regions in Australia and beyond so that they can um, maximize their uh, you know uh, appeal to customers to fly through Qatar as opposed to Dubai uh, but given the proximity of those two countries you know uh, I don't think many passengers are really going to give a damn if they're going to go through Doha or through Dubai as long as they get to their onward connection uh, in Europe and beyond so who knows what their ultimate uh, strategy is going to be whether they stick with the long hauls or they stick with uh, you know the, the double-decade 380s on those routes. Emirates certainly has a bigger name down here than Qatar because uh, they're sponsoring teams and sports stadiums and all sorts of stuff. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. The one, isn't it Qatar that's going to have an 800-seat A380? No, that's uh, Aerostral, uh, okay. French operator, French tour operator. That's right. That's right. No, I thought because I'd, I'd heard that one of the ones in the Gulf was going to go reasonably high density, but yeah, it was the French. Yeah, that, that's Emirates. I think they're going to go uh, three class at 656 for for routes in and around uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, I think maybe um, Southeast Asia, such as uh, Thailand as well. I th- but I think that's mostly from a, a labour point of view, given uh, you know the the, the high. Um, foreign nationals that they have from those regions who, uh, you know, contribute to their uh, construction work base. Yep. We're obviously at this moment in time, are probably worried about their jobs more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of construction slowing down and stopping outright in Dubai, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and you know, just going back to our first uh, talking point of the Dubai Air Show, you know, uh, all, all the construction around the city seems to have uh, ground to a, you know, a halt. Even yeah. though there is plenty of evidence of uh, you know unfinished buildings and and cranes everywhere and staff, but you know it's what happens. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it gets it goes in peaks and troughs. 
we've just talked about some of the aircraft and and definitely the the triple seven two hundred LR is being flown by Qatar down here. But uh, of of the um, the Middle East space, you've got Etihad and Qatar uh, have placed orders for the seven eight seven, and mm-hmm. um, but Emirates haven't. Although Dubai Aerospace have now, Dubai Aerospace is a is a leasing organization, organization, isn't it? Absolutely. But uh, again, going back to the ownership structure, the uh, the guy who owns Dubai Aerospace owns the Dubai Civil Aviation Authority, owns Emirates. <laughs> so th- there's an argument to be made that if uh, if and when Emirates looks to uh, get rid of their A330-200s, uh, there are 15 unplaced 787-8s at uh, Dubai Aerospace, and they would fit in pretty well with Emirates. So yeah, yes. there's an argument to be made for that. And again, if you look at a couple of uh, Emirates' previous orders for the 777 freighter, and the 747-8 freighter, those orders have actually been taken over now by Dubai Aerospace, Dubai Aerospace and leased back to Emirates. So I, w- I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some point the 787 does feature within Emirates' uh, fleet. Yeah, because uh, the lack of them having a per- having a purchase at face value, indicate, you know, it's like, oh, we're not interested in it. It's, it's sort of posturing, but yeah, going through DAE just pretty much guarantees they've got access. So which will be interesting given that the 787 is just about to fly. Now the, we're recording this on the Saturday that the, uh, sorry, the Sunday here in Australia that this this is the weekend that uh, Boeing managed to get the uh, revised 787 to get its nose wheel off the ground in the high-speed taxiing. So uh, they're saying only a few more days and it'll be flying. Absolutely. Obviously weather depending, but uh, it's, it's been a long, arduous road for Boeing. And I think um, in, the, in the last two years where we've seen a number of delays, I think the real test starts now with mm-hmm. the certification effort and making sure that they can get the other five test airplanes up into the air. I think that will probably be more challenging than the last two years. Yeah, definitely. They, uh, there's been a lot of engineering issues and uh, bureaucracy and, and management overruling engineering and setting some very uh, very challenging um, schedules that, of course, engineering can turn around and say, well, we told you so. <laughs> But uh, it's going to be great to see that in the air, uh, definitely bringing in a whole new new era, one might say. My only concern, I, I did a blog piece of my own recently on uh, comparing the 787 to the de Havilland Comet from way back in terms of how much of a cutting edge piece of equipment it is and uh, and so on. But fortunately for Boeing, they've found, well, hopefully they've found all the problems before it's hit the, uh, hit the airways. Well, you'd like to think so because ultimately if there are delays within the flight test program, you have to question the last two years of delays, what oversight has there been in their uh, quality regime? Uh, a lot of the work is outsourced, uh, you know, they, they cannot check everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they could do before when they've had legacy programs such as the 777, their last new airplane program where they had oversight of pretty much everything. So they're actually having to double check work and, and ensure that they don't miss out anything. Uh, so again, if, if anything uh, untoward crops up in the flight test program now, uh, questions are going to be asked as to whether you know the two years of delays have... Um, uh, been been even worth it, you know. If, if you're taking this much time over an airplane and you're still not getting it right, maybe this will be the turning point where heads do roll. I don't know, yeah. but uh, you know, uh, you could argue that it already has happened with uh, Scott Carson uh, announcing his retirement right after Paris. But uh-huh. uh, I, th- I think the ultimate test of uh, whether the 87 uh, not necessarily sells through its uh, flight test program is whether it can uh, demonstrate that uh, the last two years of delays have actually been w- worthwhile having so that it actually goes through a lot quicker and smoother than, uh, you know, say, the 777 did. Mm. 
Sarge, at the uh, at the Dubai Air Show, now you said there was a little light on for uh, exhibits. Uh, were there plenty of aircraft buyers around? And specifically, uh, we've heard, for instance, that the Virgin Group down here are shopping around for new aircraft, uh, although traditionally Boeing customers. Um, did you see many people from this region of the world perhaps looking around to purchase new aircraft? There were certainly a few representatives from uh, the Asia-Pacific region and also Australia, but uh, I, I just wonder how much of that is to do with um, getting a feel for what's going on in the Middle East in terms of uh, sounding out the, your regional competitors who are flying in and making an impact in Australia and beyond, or how much it had to do with actually looking to make a business deal. Uh, we've already seen just six months ago when Qantas uh, cut their 787 orders. Um, so you have to wonder, you know, are they are they really in the market for, for looking for new airplanes or, or, or are there rivals such as Virgin Blue or V Australia in the market? Uh, it, it's one of those 50-50 toss-up questions. Um, when you look at the United order, for example, Glenn, Til- Glenn Tilton was saying that, you know, they've ordered at the right time at the bottom of the market and he's ahead of everybody else. My own opinion is that he's behind the market and he still has another six years of flying old airplanes while everybody else will be taking deliveries of A350s and 787s. Mm. So again, when you if you extrapolate that back to uh, the region where you guys are in, you know a lot of you, uh, the big airlines out there, have already taken delivery of you know triple seven three hundred ERs for V Australia, uh, and also uh, you know A three thirty two hundreds for Jetstar and the A three eighty at Qantas. So those previous orders have actually already been in place. There are you know still billions worth of dollars of airplanes to be taken uh, in a service. I, I get it more of an opinion that uh, the representation out there was more of a sounding out of. Uh, the Middle East rivals than rather than looking for new uh, airplanes. I think the only exception to that is probably Virgin Blue. Everybody knows they have uh, an RFP out for, for new uh, narrow bodies, and there's a very good chance that the 737 will win. And I wonder how much of that has to do with uh, Ryanair also procrastinating over his <laughs> 737 uh, order as well because they can't get the delivery slots. Uh, and everybody knows that on narrow bodies, it's uh, double booked orders. So if they can't get the delivery slots, uh, there's an argument to be made that uh, maybe the Virgin Blue deal has already been tied up. I, don't, I, can't, I can't say with clarity, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see something announced within the next three or four months. That's a very interesting argument and point there. Um, yeah, because I, I was thinking it was more Ryanair just trying to get the cheapest price ever because, hey, that's what they well, do. Well, they've, they've agreed on price. The, 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 the issue now is on uh, deliveries because they want to have delivery from 2012 to 2016. Okay. And a lot of the deferrals that have happened from this year for the 737 have been pushed out beyond 2010 and 11. So uh, with already with double booked orders for between now and 2015 and 2016, uh, Ryanair was always going to have a hard time trying to get meaningful numbers of 737s. I mean, if you look at November, for example, they took delivery of eight 737s. So they are taking a sizable number of airplanes each month. Mm. So, But Boeing has that uh, balancing act of trying to fit in new customers, winning new campaigns, such as uh, the potential uh, Virgin Blue deal, but at the same time making sure that it has space on its books for its existing customers like Southwest and Ryanair. Yeah. Do you think would you ever see Ryanair going to Airbus? Uh, not in a million years. After we've seen, um, you know, the way EasyJet struggled with its transition, the amount of cost incurred, and the fact that uh, they were very slow taking deliveries of their A319s. Uh, Ryanair has over 200 737s now. Uh, Airbus is also fully booked with a, a lot of its A320s yeah. uh, across, across its portfolio. To get a sizable fleet would take years, and having a small, minute fleet across 737s and then training and spares and inventory uh, even if out, they outsource a lot of that stuff it's still cost that uh, just would not make economic sense particularly uh, when you I don't got, see that particularly uh, when you haven't got, ever being entertained particularly when you haven't got commonality of type then that that raises uh, you know issues in in terms of flight training and and uh, 
you know, keeping them current on, on different types, that's also an expensive proposition for an airline, I guess. So uh, keeping it all... Absolutely. Seven and and uh, one of the things that Ryanair has been successful in doing, uh, and I'm pretty sure no other low-cost carrier does it the way they do it, is that they outsource a lot of their expertise, their maintenance, their engineering, you know, a lot of their flight crew are all outsourced to then pay for two separate sets of equipment and all the paraphernalia that attach to that is just going to not be cost-effective and They've so far resisted, you know, not adding on fuel surcharges to their ticket prices. But you'd have to argue that if they wanted to run a dual fleet of some sort, they would have to look at uh, generating revenue by another means. And that would probably alienate a lot of their customer base. Well, i got to say, something from, from what I'm reading down here, it seems like Ryanair does a pretty good job of alienating its customer base anyhow. <laughs> With all the new I, charges. I think, I think that's a, I, I personally, I think that's a, a bit of a, a red herring. You, you have to remember that uh, the charges that they have, customers are well aware of them, even if they are advertised in a stealthy manner. When you look at the passenger volume of traffic that Ryanair is creating, you know, I think it was 15% year on year in uh, the, for the last quarter that they had, the three, quarter, three quarters to the end of September. You know, that's numbers only British Airways could dream of. Yeah. So obviously they're doing something right. That There are customers still coming back. And I think the customers who are coming back know exactly what Ryanair is about, where the charges are, what charges are there to avoid, and how they can make the most of, you know, their gimmicks of one penny fares, because they do exist. Mm. It's just whether you're savvy enough to take, um, you know, a few moments to, ch- to check them out. But, yeah. but, I, but I don't think that customers feel hard done by Ryanair's pricing policy. If it was, we would see that directly translated into lower passenger numbers. Mm. And so far this year and last year, that just hasn't happened. Their passenger numbers have been growing. So there's an argument to be made that the strategy employed by Ryanair is working. Well, there's a factor in that also that um, there's some quite a number of routes that Ryanair is the only one flying it. That's also a key point as well. And I think another thing when you relate back to routes and um, the 737 order, I, I get the impression that uh, Ryanair are trying to make sure that they don't over have overcapacity mm. because they've grown so much over the last four or five years. They're actually running out of routes to expand. Uh, without going into Continental, where, where on earth are you going to deploy all these 737s? You know, they've already stood down a number of jets for the winter season. They'll be put back into service in March or April, and they're still taking delivery of uh, several 737s each month. So there's an argument to be made that uh, their route structure is probably at bursting point. And uh, this is probably Michael O'Leary's way of getting out of uh, a new order by saying that Boeing can't fit us in, and we're just going to stick with the routes that we have and grow on those. Yeah, like a lot of the ones, a lot of the airlines saying, uh, look, we're not... You know, the the A380 is not quite ready or oh, the 787 is not ready. Oh, it's Boeing's fault, Airbus's fault, etc. When really they're going, thank God for that. We don't have to put the aircraft on. Absolutely. And and a lot of these carriers are doing that. Uh, mm. you, you look at um, in Japan, you know, um, they've been cutting capacity for quite a while. And you look at the state that Japan Airlines is in. If, any, if there's any 787 order that's under threat, I, w- I would reckon it would be Japan Airlines right now. <laughs> So, you know, there's an argument to be made that all of these delays have uh, kind of worked well. And only 18 months ago, Air India was really complaining about the delays to their 787 order. And if you look uh, only recently, a couple of days ago, there was a, uh, I can't remember whether it was Wall Street Journal or, or Reuters, who were reporting that uh, Boeing's in discussion with Air India for deferring uh, their outstanding 777 orders. Uh, and that and that bodes well in terms of Boeing's decision to cut uh, 777 production from next year. So they've kind of been ahead of the curve in terms of uh, production capacity. So uh, th- th- there's... Uh, a long way to go before a lot of these customers who are complaining about 787 delays will be, uh, you know, looking to take this material on and, and fit it into their fleet because at the moment they're just not ready for it. Which does raise a, a, an interesting one. We've spoken here about uh, backlogs and um, customers wanting more and things like that, which raises the specter of, of new aircraft to replace the 737 A320 line or the uh, the 777 line for Boeing. And especially on the narrow body, it, it's, it's at the point where you've got to think, how can Boeing 
and Airbus introduce a whole new aircraft for the narrow body and and slaughter their current orders for the the current narrow bodies. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure that they would uh, slaughter the orders. What you'd probably find is you'll probably get uh, you know a good proportion of those customers who are at the tail end of deliveries wanting to renegotiate contractual terms to take on newer airplanes uh, or, or replacements. Obviously, Airbus now has uh, introduced the winglet feature onto uh, its A320s from the 2012 sh- onwards, and, the and then New Zealand is going to yeah the Sharklet. Uh, I prefer to call it a winglet. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to play to the Airbus PR. It's it's a winglet by any other name, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it, they've taken quite a while to make that decision, and uh, you, you'll probably see a lot of customers who are at the tail end of the Airbus uh, A320 production line from 2013 onwards taking up that option because it's, it's only really worthwhile if you have a new build airplane. Yep. So I'm not really sure that we're going to see an attrition of any existing orders if if and when Boeing and Airbus announce uh, replacement 737 or A320, you'll probably see a churn of existing orders to the newer models. You will obviously see newer orders altogether as well from those who have actually already got existing, you know, 737s and A320s. You know, uh, AirAsia is a very good candidate for uh, replacement A320 or 737, as is uh, Southwest or American Airlines. But uh, it, it all depends on timing. And, uh, you know, there was talk only two years ago at the Dubai Air Show when I spoke to Randy Tinseth. It was going to be 2013. Last year, we saw it pushed out to 2016 and now it's 2020 or who knows even later than that and obviously the engine technology is also a big uh, driver behind this as well we have cfm with the leap x 56 and the uh, gtf from pratt and whitney uh, so th- there's a lot of uh, engine direction that needs to drive a lot of the decision making behind uh, a new narrow body do i think we'll see any uh, re-engining of the existing product lineup before a new replacement comes personally i don't think so i think what we'll see is enhancements to the existing engines as you've seen last year sorry earlier this year when boeing and cfm announced the uh, evolution engine uh, to the 737 mm-hmm. and I think that's the direction that's going to happen between now and whenever a new replacement for the narrow bodies come out I don't think we'll see uh, any new engines altogether being uh, attached to any A320 or 737 the, the investment just wouldn't be worth it ultimately these are 25% of a new airframe uh, engine makers are already coy about having to invest money in new engines and if you look at the last two or three wide bodies uh, you're only getting two choices of engine there's only yep. two choice of engine on the A380 two on the 787 only one on the seven. 47 and by default there's only one choice on the a350 so you know there's an argument to be made that uh, engine costs will probably factor in in any possible re-engineering for me re-engineering is probably enhancing the existing engines that we have today but i don't see any new engines going on uh, an existing airplane I think the last airplane that we'll see that happen on is the 747-8, which is essentially a, a rewinged and um, re-engined airplane. Yep. But I don't think that's going to happen ever again. Okay, because uh, there is there is the comment that especially with the, the geared turbofan engines, uh, there's no room under a 737 especially to, to sling them. Uh, uh, that That's not strictly true because uh, Boeing can, uh, you know, employ a, the f- a flat nacelle on there to get in under. It can, it can be done. It's just whether Boeing wants to fork out the investment to to make it work uh, and there's always the landing gear leg which is probably a lot more flexible than the a320 uh, landing gear because it doesn't actually sit in a wheel well mm. so they, they have the flexibility to uh, employ a larger uh, leg and just carve out a bigger wheel well uh, 
casing for for the 737 for it to work but um, i i don't think that uh, the gtf wouldn't work on the 737 okay. it's just whether boeing wants to stump up the cost to do it <laughs> it's all about cost okay because I, I was Absolutely. under the i was under the impression that uh, the gtf would just be too big to fit underneath the because the, the 737 sits pretty low uh, but yeah it, it does sit pretty low but but there's also speculation uh, between both airbus and boeing that uh, the gtf will not deliver on what pratt and whitney says it would do if it was a case that the gtf uh, could cut the mustard i could guarantee you airbus would have launched it by now uh, the fact the fact that they haven't says a lot about the gtf uh, you know it's been in testing for almost two years with with airbus now and even after two years that they cannot make a decision i think that speaks volumes about uh, the prowess or otherwise of pratt and whitney's marketing hype between the gtf and its applica- applicability to um, existing airframes i just don't think that it's what it's made out to be and i don't think that boeing really cares at this moment in time that it doesn't uh, say what it says it can do because Airbus isn't biting on it and they have no reason to uh, put money in where they uh, don't really need to be putting it in on the 737 so it, it's a bit of a, a red herring. Okay so Andrew, <laughs> we're probably getting towards the end of our time here but I wanted to ask you we were just talking about uh, low-cost airlines and uh, the Airbus uh, A320 which brings to mind the other operator in this country which um, doesn't have the best reputation of course that's Tiger Airways who we're very critical of usually on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we do call them the Ryan Air. I wonder why. Yeah. Um, Tiger Airways have only got seven A320s that they're operating in this country at the moment. Is there any news around in your part of the world um, that they might be placing orders for more aircraft? They certainly need them. I think with Tiger Airways, one of the things that uh, always baffled me when Singapore made this move was that they never really seemed to put any sizable numbers behind their operation. I don't know whether they wanted to ultimately perhaps launch another new low-cost carrier with a Singapore brand and bring that into Australia or whether they wanted to actually give Tiger Airways uh, wide bodies, which they don't currently have in their fleet, mm. which would then put it directly head-to-head with Jetstar. Uh, so th- there's an argument to be made that uh, Singapore is playing its hand close to its chest and it doesn't want to reveal too much, or, or it's probably just happily plying its trade, waiting for um, a potential merger opportunity. Um, and if, if this may be a... a you know, a complete uh, dream out here. But if uh, Virgin Blue were to, you know, merge with uh, Tiger or something, not only would they have, the, you know, the second biggest domestic network in Australia, but at the same time, the cost of uh, turning over a fleet to uh, Virgin's fleet would be very, very low. And there's always that Singapore Airlines 49% stakeholding in uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Atlantic as well. So there's uh, a business and stroke a political point of view that could be put in there as well and obviously given Sir Richard Branson shareholding in Virgin Blue as well I would like to think that that's an outside possibility that that could happen but as to whether Tiger is going to expand and I I think that really depends on whether they want to take on uh, uh, you know Qantas whether they want to take on Jetstar and whether they want to take on uh, Virgin Blue. I just don't see that they want to do that. I think that they're happily plying their trade and that they will probably grow maybe a couple of more frames, maybe double their fleet, but not in not in the next two or three years. I just don't see that happening. If they haven't done it in the, in the boom years, I don't see why they would do it now when traffic is slowing down. Well, they, they do apparently have about 20 or so other airframes on order, but... Um I'm not sure about Tiger and Virgin Blue, and I mean, yes, Singapore does have a 49. It's, a, it's an outside state. possibility. I, I'm I'm seeing it as an outsider, so I I, I could be completely wrong. <laughs> but I'm just trying to draw in all parallels from you know the conundrum here. Yeah, well, it's just the the reason why I'm saying it is don't forget uh, you know, like Delta and Virgin are getting into bed with the V Australia Delta Delta uh-huh. V link up across the Pacific and so on, and and Tiger was very quick to 
protest about that on behalf of Singapore. You know, yeah, I could have, I could almost see Tiger becoming the low cost carrier for Virgin um, here in Australia because Virgin Airways has been Virgin Blue has been making a big thing about them being a new co- new world carrier as opposed to a low cost. Mm-hmm. They're in that that split, so it's, it could be rather funny that um, Tiger times. becomes the the LCC for Virgin. But, yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, one of the other the interesting things that I see from, from where I'm sat when I look at Australia is that, uh, you know, uh, Qantas has done an excellent job of killing its own business with Jetstar. Mm. And, um, you know, the the, the uh, reshuffling of the 787 orders recently, uh, well, throughout 2009, if you will, has been uh, quite astonishing. Uh, I don't know whether that's uh, uh, Alan Joyce's new directional change after Dixon or, or whether they think that uh, Jetstar is ultimately going to yield them, you know, uh, more revenue and profitability than more Qantas in the long run because of its low cost base. Who knows? But it, it's interesting to see that uh, Qantas has done a, a class A job of shooting itself in the foot. Yeah, yeah no, well, Joy- Joyce has been out in the media recently saying that there'll be no further jet starization, if you like, of Qantas. But uh, he says that he says that, but uh, the actions of the company would suggest otherwise for sure. There mm-hmm. seems to be more and more Qantas mainline work being shifted across to Jetstar. So uh, yep. you know, it's we wonder. Yeah, you know, we, we we've often pondered on this podcast. You know, where this is all leading with the Qantas Group. Well, you, you can I think see the, the other critical thing that I noticed with uh, with Qantas is that the, you know their, their forward bookings in uh, their premium cabins are very low. Only a few months ago we saw that they wanted to reconfigure their new A380s with uh, fewer first and business class seats and when a customer is doing that less than 12 months after taking first delivery, you have to wonder, you know, is the A380 working for them? Um, obviously, they'll swear blind that it is. They have no other choice. They've made the expenditure now, so they have to make it work. And I can tell you from uh, my own discussions with BA, you know, they've gone through several various uh, cabin configurations for the A380, and they're struggling to make uh, the business case work, primarily because it can't carry the same amount of freight that the 777s and uh, 747s uh, carry. So uh, you know, the A380 isn't everything for everybody like it is for Emirates, but um, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see whether you know the profit margins that uh, Qantas makes on uh, the A380 are going to be anywhere near as uh, you know good as what Jetstar will make with the 787. So, does BA do they charge a premium to ride on the 380? I mean, Qantas certainly does that, which is one thing that I find. Ultimately, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, that's what they're going to do. But the problem that BA has is because a lot of their uh, cabin paraphernalia and seating is so heavy, the floor density weighting on the A380 and their cabin configuration will mean that ultimately they could be up to as much as six tons out on freight. Mm-hmm. Uh, either they would have to back that up with frequency with existing airplanes, or it will mean um, they'll have to uh, cut back on seating on the A380 and some of the cabin to make sure that they can get all of that freight on board their operation. Uh, as you know, BA doesn't operate a, a dedicated freighter fleet. They only have three leased 747-400s, and, and even those are uh, seasonally adjusted and uh, their operation in cargo is pretty significant driver for their business, especially now as they've lost a hell of a lot of uh, revenue from the Asia-Pacific Rim region month on month. When you look at BA's traffic numbers, you see a 20% plus drop in you know, volume. Yeah. And if that's what's happening in volume, uh, while I can't give you figures, it, it's not far off from what they're losing in yield. So huh. <laughs> uh, it, it gives you an idea of how much uh, blood-curdling money that they're losing. And you saw over this summer, they're, you know, stunning loss of over 400 million pounds. And, you know, so it gives you an idea of how bad BA is actually doing. And, yeah. and the A380 is going to add to their problems, not, not ease it. Well, that's, and that's just right. You, you can see that with Qantas as well, that uh, the Qantas, Qantas mainline lost money, whereas Jetstar made money and kept the Qantas group afloat. Uh, Qantas are uh, losing money big time with the loss of premium traffic and the massive discounting going on with uh, 
with the uh, flights to the UK and across to uh, the USA. Now that you've got more competition on the US run, their, their premium traffic, that, w- that was their cash cow and it's just being slaughtered. Agreed. And, and, and it's the same for, for BA. And, uh, you know, they're going to struggle uh, for, the, for a number of years, uh, as far as I can see, not, not least because, you know, they've been hindered by the 787 delays and also because they've been very slow to replace their 747 fleet. Uh, granted, you know, a lot of them are still 10 or 11 years old, so they still have a good 10 or 15 service life years left. You know, the, the oldest 747-200 was over 27 years old before that left the fleet. So there, there's a good argument to be made that uh, Bo- uh, British Airways has uh, done a wise thing by investing to replace the early build uh, 747s, but then the problems Airbus is having in actually delivering A380s isn't helping. Mm. You know, already already this year we've seen Airbus change the production schedule for this year four times. You know, from from 18 to 14, from 14 to 13, from 13 to 11, and they're still they've only delivered eight this year. That's less than one a month. You know, you know a lot of people complain about. Uh, or talk about the 747 being in a lost position, but in the grand scheme of things, the 747's lost position is nowhere near as biblically catastrophic as that uh, <laughs> as the A380. Uh, and I'm not saying that as an anti-European because my taxes have funded that airplane, but I'm saying it because <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, so you know, and you look at the A400M as well. You know, they're they're, lo- they're looking for more money on that program as well, yep. seven seven or eight billion dollars uh, for that. So you know, you, you have to wonder whether you know there is any scope of business sense going going into some of these European projects. But again, going back to the the A380, Airbus has struggled. I don't think next year is going to be any better for them. I'm not quite sure why they are struggling as much as they are on the A380. I know they blame it on cabin customization, but then that happens with every customer. It doesn't matter what airplane you're, you're producing. Uh, it's always customer specific. Uh, so why is the A380 any different? Uh, unless there's an inherent production chain problem that they have, like Boeing is having on the A7, that they don't want to kind of publicly acknowledge, which I think is the real problem. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the A380 is going to be in a quagmire for at least another three or four years, and and let's not forget, 2010 is when they assumed that they were going to be producing 45 A380s a year. It's not going to happen for at least another decade, mm-hmm. if at best. And that obviously depends on whether they get any future orders. 204 orders after 10 years is not something to be proud of, basically. <laughs> when you when you've invested that sum of money. Well, Sarge, we're sort of running a bit uh, bit long here, so we ought to wrap it up. Um, maybe just a quick comment on the, the general state of the industry as a whole, in in your view. It, the, the industry is probably at the, the point that it's never been in for the last 30 or 40 years. And I think next year is going to be a big turning point for both airlines and the, the big two operators, uh, Airbus and Boeing. One of the things that I'll be particularly keenly, acutely watching out for is financing uh, for both Airbus and Boeing. A lot of customers over the last two years have been deferring orders and have been looking for uh, financing of their existing commitments. We've seen a lot of uh, financial pressures over the last 12 months. You know, financing is hard to get now. Uh, We've already seen troubles with AIG and even CIT. So these customers who are looking to purchase and acquire airplanes next year are going to have a hell of a hard time finding financing. Uh, what with the Dubai world problems, the you know the cautiousness about uh, Islamic and Sharia banking for for aircraft financing may take a, a, a hold next year. I know a lot of airlines have kind of stayed away from it, and a lot of the big three Arab carriers used that for their fleet purchases. But I think this could be a turning point for them to kind of come out of the dark side of the late part of 2009 and start off 2010 with you know a lot of uh, new initiatives to put forward uh, financing options for 
customers who are struggling with uh, acquisition of uh, new airplanes. Uh, again, it's going to link directly in with Airbus and Boeing because they don't want to have too much debt on their books. Uh, Boeing only has around about six, just over six billion dollars cash in hand. Uh, Airbus around about twelve. But uh, the exposure that both companies have to other projects, A400M, A380, 787 delays, and, and compensation, and again for Airbus A350, uh, th- those uh, financial strengths that they possess right now is going to be a very short-lived affair. Uh, next year. So w- financing is for me is going to be the real key theme for, for 2010. And I think uh, when, when Farnborough Air Show rolls around next July, we'll, we'll see a lot of uh, weakness uh, in that show, as we've seen in Paris and as we've seen in Dubai. And I think it's it's going to last for a good two or three years yet before we get out to any meaningful, not even recovery, but back to where we dropped from. Okay, because uh, next year is also, for me, I'm, I'm watching with interest to see what happens with uh, some of the smaller manufacturers getting bigger, especially Embraer. Um, Bombardier with the C series and so on, and uh, the the newcomer, the Chinese, with with theirs. Admittedly, the Chinese is probably going to stick. I don't see a lot of export orders coming up, but uh, never say never with those guys. I think with the the, the Embraer's and uh, you know Bombardier is is, is always going to be interesting. They're trying to step into well, certainly Bombardier is with the C series trying to step into Airbus's and Boeing's territory. But may, maybe this is my negative view on it. It's not necessarily spin, but. The fact of the matter is the C-Series has been around for five years and it hasn't got any market traction. It has less than five customers. It has less than 100 orders for, for a potential 737, A320 replacement. Uh, it's just not good enough. They, they can market it as they as they want to as an alternative, but the fact of the matter is it just hasn't had any traction. And I think, if anything, you'll probably find that the Chinese Comac C919 will probably get a lot more traction uh, on an international scale than uh, the C-Series will. Perhaps I'm being overly optimistic on that, but even in a numerical term, and Chinese carriers taking uh, deliveries or placing orders for the C919 next year, uh, it, it'll probably uh, trawl ahead within the next 18 months ahead of the C-Series. The C-Series has a lot of... Uh, promise, uh, but I just don't think that it is going to be a, a viable alternative to the A320 or 737, okay. primarily because the, uh, the C-Series is probably at its biggest point, and without a new wing, uh, they just wouldn't be able to compete. And, um, you know, Airbus and Boeing still have, you know, decent offerings in the A319 and 737-700, which are comparably sized and have equally, you know, uh, good fuel burn, good residual values, and uh, an exponentially huge customer base so you know the c-series has its work cut out and if after five years they haven't managed to uh, make a big impression i don't think it's going to happen anytime soon either okay excellent i think that's i think that's pretty much a wrap and i've i've really appreciated the chat saj um i think i, I thank you guys for the opportunity and i certainly look forward to and relish uh, uh, another gathering if possible certainly yeah, in the I, early part of next year yeah Definitely. i certainly feel that uh had we had the time i could probably still be chatting with the time of hitting three hours it's uh, it's just fascinating <laughs> but uh, absolutely i i can talk for the world yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but i have i have to take into account that it's uh what is it midnight now where you guys are yeah it is midnight yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i've just come up on midnight but, but uh, uh, that's uh, nothing unusual yeah. for us that's for sure <laughs> yeah it's about the only time <laughs> steve and i can get our clocks to align our schedules to align is late at night but uh no we'd definitely like to take you up on that and have another chat with you um, towards the end of the first and I, and I know that uh, uh, Mike would certainly be uh, pleased at uh, <laughs> having me back on <laughs> yeah no Mike's been uh, Mike's been a wonderful source of uh, news and uh, new sources for us recently so that's been fantastic Sarge the website is fleetbuzz.com fleetbuzzeditorial.com uh, right sorry fleetbuzzeditorial.com there we are and do you do Twitter uh, Sarge do people follow you there uh, I, I do I do Twitter. I'm uh, uh, as Fleetbuzz on Twitter. Excellent. Sarge, we know it's a very busy time, obviously, at your house, and we certainly appreciate uh, you spending some time with us on the program.
Nogum, and we look forward to a uh, pleasure. very much to talking to you again in the new year. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, guys. Have a great afternoon. Well, great, great day. <laughs> Monday started for you now. Great, great evening. Okay. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Sad. And so there we go. Grant, what do you reckon about that? And uh, the really cool thing about Sarge is that he's uh, keen to come on board with us and he uh, is now going to be our European and Middle East correspondent. Ooh, we didn't tell him that. <laughs> no, we didn't tell him that, but he was keen to come on, so I just thought the label fit really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must be masochistic enough to come back on. There you go. No, uh, excellent. He joins the uh, select crowd that are uh, willing to come back again. <laughs> yep, that gives us a correspondent on every continent now except for Africa. And Antarctica. Well, yeah, and Antarctica, that's right. Don't we're we have working a, on a couple of penguins there. Don't we have a base down there somewhere? Yeah, yeah, we might be able to get someone who, uh, ooh, how about one of the guys who flies down there in the A319? Yeah, there you go, the only one on the Australian register, actually. Yeah, and it lands on the Blue Ice Runway. Woohoo! Mm, excellent. Some really interesting uh, comments there from Sarge. I don't know uh, about the idea of uh, Tiger Airways and Virgin Blue merging together. That would be uh, theoretically an interesting uh, combination, but... Uh, yeah, and even he said he couldn't see it happening, but it would be an interesting thing to think about. Tiger blue. <laughs> Tiger blue. <laughs> or just or just virgin blue with a few A320s in the fleet. Has it? <laughs> virgin meow. <laughs> yes. We had to find a new sound effect when we were talking about Tiger Airways. Oh, there you go, Tiger and Virgin Blue. If you ever do merge up and you want to use our names, just give us a call. You made some interesting comments there on the, uh, the viability of the A380 and uh, Airbus's ability to deliver according to their advertised production schedule. Yeah, unlike, unlike Boeing, they're not really able to open a second plant. Although, I, 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 like I've said earlier in the episode, I am going to be watching the 787 to see if it delivers on its promises. Yep, and so once again, a huge uh, thanks there to Mike Williamson up there in Sydney who uh, first uh, made us aware of Sarge and his website. He was very keen for us to uh, get a hold of him, and uh, after that interview, well, I'm just so glad that we did, uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking to Sarge again in the new year. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Mike, and uh, thanks again to Sarge. Uh, really appreciated him taking the time to have a chat with us. Okay, mate. Uh, across the Tasman now, and we're going to have a bit of a talk about Air New Zealand, and uh, they've been opening up a, uh, some new routes, or a new route at least, from uh, Rotorua to Sydney. Yes, Rotorua, where you have to put some of your jewellery in a sealed safe because it goes off because of the uh, sulphur in the air. It's a uh, very geothermal area of New Zealand. Uh, they are now flying direct Sydney Rotorua with an A320 that just opened a couple of days ago. So congratulations to Air New Zealand and opening up a whole new route. So a lot of people in Rotorua are very excited about it. People can go direct there without having to stage through Auckland. It's saving them hours of their trip and uh, they're looking forward to some increased tourism in the area. You know, that's that's an area of the world that I would really like to go and see one day and um, perhaps we can, we can do a do a road trip across there to New Zealand one day, Grant, and take the podcast right. overseas. Interesting there, Grant, that, uh, you know, everybody, you know, people were excited about the uh, the advent of this new flight. Now, one passenger, however, <laughs> perhaps wasn't and we found this in stuff.co.nz. Says uh, Rotorua's first trans-Tasman flight to Sydney yesterday was hampered when a passenger had to be escorted off the plane by the police. Yes, alcohol was apparently a factor. Air New Zealand spokesman Mark Street said the pilot in command called for the police to come and assist after making a careful assessment that the customer was exhibiting behaviour to a level where he felt was uncomfortable having him on board. In other words, one too many VBs or whatever they have over there in New Zealand equivalent. And, uh, uh, Lion, Dominion. Don't kind of, I don't know if those beers are still around. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm not up on, on Kiwi beers, but yeah. So uh, I'm sure Mike will fix us on that and yeah, some of the other guys. That's right. So, um, yeah, apart from that uh, one little hiccup, yeah, it's good to see that, uh, and, you know, we keep talking about in New Zealand and, and they're doing good things over there. Really impressive. Less hub and spoke, more direct flights. Thank you very much. 
Okay, mate. Now, that was just a uh, brief trip across the Tasman this week. We'll have some more uh, New Zealand news in the next episode. But uh, we're going to move to a uh, another part of the world now with a story that uh, affects a lot of people here in Australia. And unfortunately, it's not a positive one. Uh, and it's talking about the uh, Garuda pilot who was involved in the crash in 2007 in uh, Yogyakarta. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Correct? Yogyakarta. He, uh, he was flying the approach too fast. He ignored multiple warnings in the cockpit and he ignored his co-pilot. Pilot uh, begging him to go around. He was reported, in fact, on the cockpit voice recorder, they recorded him singing on approach, and he wound up coming in way too fast, slammed into the ground, and the aircraft broke up, went naturally over the end of the runway, broke up, and uh, caught fire, and a number of people were killed. That raised a lot of issues about uh, Garuda's training, it raised a lot of issues about uh, Yogi Carter's airport, and because it was substandard, uh, the uh, fire safety people were not able to respond as they should have. It opened a whole huge can of worms. The pilot was at one point tried and found guilty of uh, being guilty of a crime. Uh, there was a lot of concern that his criminal negligence conviction was uh, should not have been applied. Uh, this from the uh, group of people who go in the area of saying if it becomes a crime to have an accident, then people won't report incidents and will become less safe. And I can agree with that. I can understand that that view. And I know in the US we've got the NASA reporting form where or are allowed to, if you report it and it's not a case of of negligence, then it's your get out of jail free card in a way. And that's, that's a great way of getting information that can help us become a safer flying community. But it, the key point here is if you're not committing a negligent, a grossly negligent act. And I got to say, this guy was either psychologically gone or just gro- criminally negligent in that he ignored multiple warnings. He got total fixation, ignored people begging him. There's something wrong with this guy. And he has been, his conviction for criminal negligence has been overturned because uh, the court said prosecutors had failed to prove him officially and convincingly guilty of a crime. Uh, so he's not guilty, he's out, and he wants to get back into flying again. He really wants to be back flying. And that, to me, scares the heck out of me. But one aspect that's not really being pushed here is that perhaps one of the other guilty parties in this is Garuda. Their training was woefully inadequate and uh, that was an issue that came up as a result of the uh, accident investigation. So uh, yeah, this guy could be back and flying if someone's going to take him. I don't know who will, but uh, yeah, and not sure how much Garuda's changed that's one of my concerns about that airline yeah the captain in the or the former captain i guess the uh, pilot in command the person in question his name is mawaito koma and uh, yeah he was actually sentenced to two years jail uh, for negligence it says here in a report i'm reading off abc news uh, that was back in april now i've read in other news sources here that he has uh, expressed his desire in fact he actually did a thing on one of the uh, one of the trash current affairs shows here i think it might have been today tonight one of those uh, pseudo journalistic shows anyway he was on there uh, talking talking about uh, his desire to and, and his dream to come back and be a pilot. Uh, I have seen Garuda quoted in the media over the last week or so since uh, this decision was handed down that uh, they would in fact not be uh, re-employing him. So uh, he, if, if he's going to get another job flying, it's not going to be with them. It could be the famous flying plastic dog turds out of uh, Hong Kong, as the, as the phrase goes. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. And, you know, uh, there were uh, 21 people killed in that crash, uh, including five Australians, uh, diplomat, federal police officers, a uh, journalist, uh, Morgan Mellish, I think his name was. Probably given the uh, circumstances uh, of the crash, it's a, it's a wonder anybody walked away from it, really. It's a miracle that a lot of people survived that crash, but uh, 21 people died. Uh, he's walked away basically scot-free. Uh, I guess he has to live with his conscience. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say on that. I Even for Indonesia's rather the dodgy justice system. This is amazing considering the huge amount of uh, assistance they get from this country anytime something goes wrong over there um, I don't know <laughs> I'm no diplomat, but this just doesn't sit right with me at all, and I'm just I'm lost for words, really. Why? And why was he only given two years jail for negligence? Good God! According to him, he's blamed the disaster on mechanical problems. Yeah, and that's interesting. Yeah. He says that because uh, investigators found uh, with the uh, flight data recorders that there were no mechanical problems with the aircraft. Yeah, it was he him ignoring the uh, cockpit warnings, ignoring his co-pilot pleading. I mean, I've got to say, uh, co-pilot. Uh, does need a, a little bit of advice that next time backhand your captain. No, I, I'm going to go on the record. This guy has no place in the cockpit flying commercial airliners. I'm sorry, gross negligence or a psychological fault, and get him out. Yeah, there is there is talk of an appeal. Although I, I read here on one of the news sources we're looking at here that uh, the decision to uh, quash the conviction uh, cannot be appealed. So it uh, looks like uh, that's. Uh Hasn't got much hope of uh, appealing, although I I, I have heard other reports saying that uh, prosecutors will, will appeal it, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how their justice system works. G'day, this is Owens Up. Join me in May 2010 as I trek around Australia in a Jabiru 230 to celebrate the centenary of powered flight down under and in the process raise vital funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Check out my website and follow my progress at www.thereandback.com.au. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the in-flight service with Grant and Steve on Playing Crazy Down Under. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we rely on the generous support of our listening audience. If you like what we do, if you enjoy our weekly attempts at infotainment, then please visit www.planecrazydownunder.com and click on the button marked Donate. Donations of any size are very much appreciated. Thanks, folks. This Week in Aviation History, Australia Edition, with David Vanderhoof. Welcome to This Week in Rock and Roll, Episode 1, Number 5, Important Aviation Albums. This week we're going to focus on the quintessential album, Top Gun, followed by an in-depth look at Alan Parsons' On Air. What? You don't want to hear about my musical commentary? Okay, never mind. How about Aviation History Down Under, November 16th through December 5th? On November 16th, 1919, Captain Henry Nielsen Wrigley and Lieutenant Arthur William Spuds Murphy made the first aerial crossing of Australia. The pair flew a Royal Aircraft Factory BE-2E from Port Cook, Melbourne to Port Darwin. The flight lasted 47 flying hours and ended on December 12th. The BE-2 flew 4,500 kilometers without a radio. 
trial. Both Wrigley and Murphy were awarded the Air Force Cross for the flight. To give you some stats about the aircraft, and to drive home the point that this was quite an accomplishment, the BE-2E was designed by Jeffrey de Havilland in 1911. It had a 90-horsepower RAF-1A liquid-cooled engine. It developed a maximum speed of 90 miles per hour. The range was 360 miles with a service ceiling of 9,000 feet. All of the above was taken from the BE-2 in action, Squadron Signal 123, by Peter Cooksley, copyright 1992, Squadron Signal Publications. A year later, on November 16, 1920, the Queensland and Northern Territories Air Service was formed. The Qantas founding members were Pearl McGuinness, Hudson Fish, and Fergus McMaster. The airline's first aircraft was an Avro 504K. The aircraft was purchased for £1,425 sterling, adjusted for inflation that would be approximately $25,000 Australian. The 504 could carry a pilot and two passengers. Its very first passenger was Alexander Kennedy. For the first 10 years, Qantas flew the mail and was subsidized by the Australian government. The kangaroo logo, I found out, was not adopted for use until 1944. And now for some military news. On November 28, 1942, Flight Sergeant Ron Middleton is awarded the Victoria Cross for Valor. Middleton was flying a short Sterling Mark I BF-372 Call sign OJH of 149 East India Squadron, Royal Air Force. On a raid over the Alps to Turin, Italy, Middleton's bomber was strafed by anti-aircraft weapons. He was severely wounded. Middleton nursed the bomber back to England. Flying parallel to the coast, his crew bailed out and was safe. Middleton ditched the aircraft in the English Channel and subsequently died. Middleton's posthumous citation reads, His devotion to duty in the face of overwhelming odds is unsurpassed in the annals of the Royal Air Force. Middleton was only 26 when he passed. On December 1st, 1951, Flight Officer Bruce Gogerly of the RAAF 77 Squadron, flying a Gloucester Meteor F-8, claims the first air-to-air victory against a MiG-15 during the Korean conflict. During the engagement, 50-plus MiGs jumped the unit's 12 meteors. Gogerly was flying A-7717 over MiG Alley, just south of the Yalu River. All meteor missions were flown by the RAAF out of Kiempo. Australian meteors accounted for six MiGs by the end of the war at a loss of two aircraft. Well, gentlemen, that wraps up this segment. Off to write, edit, record this week's Airplane Geek segment. This has been David M. Vanderhoof, the Australian Airplane Geeks historian, signing out. Cheers! And another fantastic report there from David. Uh, geez, Grant, he, he really does put in a, a great effort for us, doesn't he? Considering that those guys over there at our that other podcast that we're on, what's that called again? Oh, that's right, Airplane Geeks. Yes, our code-sharing uh, environment, yes. I, I think they get him to do some work for them as well, but um, I'm really, no, seriously, we are seriously appreciative of all the uh, work that uh, David does for us. And we actually spend, uh, you know, quite a lot of time corresponding with David in between episodes, and uh, it's, it's always a great thing. Oh, of, of interest there, where he mentioned <coughs> that uh, Qantas started with the Avro 504K, well, there is a, a 504K replica displayed at the Qantas domestic terminal. It's in a, a large space just near the uh, entrance to the Qantas Club lounge area. The other bit that I, I noticed out of this was uh, he referred to the gentleman flying the aircraft with the um, ID Oscar Juliet Hotel OJH. Now, while that was a um, squadron ID and an aircraft ID within the squadron, I just found it uh, rather amusing because Victor Hotel Oscar Juliet Hotel is the registration of the Qantas 747-400 that uh, ran off the end of the runway at Bangkok 
uh, it was QF1 flying into Bangkok and uh, they should have gone around. They went, they floated down and they shoved it down and uh, unfortunately ran off the end of the runway and that aircraft was extensively damaged. It was fully rebuilt and uh, wound up flying out and has back in the air and uh, it is now known as the golf buggy. And one footnote there, Grant, um, just I should tell you, you want to talk about uh, how cool it is to live where David lives. Um, the Army-Navy game was on, uh, the Army-Navy football game was on the uh, the other day when I was talking to him. And, of course, there was a lot of military aircraft around because I think he lives somewhere near one of the big uh, rotary wing manufacturing plants in uh, Philadelphia. I'm not sure which cool. company that is. However, he says, oh, look, I'm just looking overhead as a couple of V-22 Ospreys fly over. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm looking outside and watching a Piper Warrior fly over and thinking, well, I know where I'd rather be. Yeah, yeah, I get all excited watching some of the helicopters that fly by, like when we get the uh, the Super Pumas and sometimes the Sikorsky S-61 that's on lease here for uh, firebombing. But, yeah, Ospreys, he wins. Yeah, he wins hands down. So uh, very cool, David. And he'll be back with us again uh, an episode or two from now with another one of his fantastic uh, this week in rock and roll uh, slash uh, this week in aviation history. Okay, now we're getting towards the the end of our allotted time. <laughs> to quote another famous podcaster in the aviation game. So uh, we'll just cover a few news briefs here, Grant, and we'll probably cover these ones in more detail on uh, upcoming episodes. Uh, The first one, of course, is the government white paper on Australian aviation has uh, been released. Yeah, for me, this is is equally important to the 787 first flight. Uh, This is a big thing for Australia, having a white paper from the government talking about aviation, trying to set out direction on a holistic view. It's a big concept. It's got lots of promise. However, there's even from some of the cursory reviews there are some indications of problems with it for instance they're saying that the Badgeries Creek site will not be used as the second airport for Sydney which sets us right back to the start of trying to figure out where it's going to be and how we're going to make it all happen you've got uh, a relaxer, bit of a relaxation in security where uh, metal cutlery is back on planes and uh, I think they might even be easing the water restriction they're looking at easing ownership rules for Qantas and VB the whole document itself is about 246 pages long I do have a copy of it and I will be reading it. Um, I doubt I'm going to be able to do as good a job as many of the others I know who are reading it at the moment, including the team from Australian Aviation, our favourite flying magazine. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, they're currently going through it and ripping it apart and they will be commenting. I know Ben Sanderlins, who writes a blog on crikey.com.au, has already started making his comments and uh, he's definitely kind of upset about the uh, no immediate second airport developments for Sydney. So we'll we'll be collating all this and uh, giving you some good summaries over the next couple of episodes. Yeah, if you're interested, folks, in having a look, we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, government website. It's at infrastructure.gov.au and there's uh, a few steps on from that. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can actually download the uh, white paper and have a look. Uh, yeah, so yeah, if you want to do that, if you have some specific issues that you'd like us to uh, to cover on upcoming episodes, uh, certainly let us know on our email address, under at gmail.com. Correct. And yes, I have the uh, PDF and I have started reading it. Lucky me. And the next one that we'll cover just briefly this week is uh, an article that appeared in the Daily Telegraph uh, on December 16th. And it's talking about a uh, flight school up there in Sydney that's collapsed and uh, has left as many as 100 students in the lurch. Yeah, that's right. This is our equivalent of the uh, Sun State Aviation and Sun State Helicopters collapse in the US that a lot of students had prepaid for their uh, education and learning to fly. And the company then collapses and they're left having paid a lot of money and uh, having nothing to show for it. 
it. This is a bit of a blot against uh, aviation in Australia and especially also for yet another problem with uh, foreign students coming to Australia to learn. There's been a number of cases where uh, recently it's been brought to our attention uh, via the press that a lot of these groups that cater to foreign students coming to learn in Australia, some have gone belly up, leaving the students with nothing and others have been shown to be rorting the students or overcharging them, things like that. Well, in this case, we had a bit of advance warning about this from uh, our mate David Optimal up in uh, who flies out of Bankstown. He'd been giving us the uh, rumours that were going around Bankstown that it was about to happen and sure enough, splat, they've gone under. Uh, but the bit that's really getting a lot of people upset is that the uh, managing director of the school has started trading again under a new name. They're actually talking here about the uh, Sydney Flight Training Centre and their parent company, Corporate Aviation Services. They were actually placed in administration on the 25th of November, owing creditors more than $7 million. Now, interestingly here, the students who are mostly Indian and Malaysian, they've paid more than 54 grand each for these uh, flying courses. So, and they're saying now that they're owed at least 30 grand of that back. So that's not a good thing. This is at a time where uh, Australia is in the uh, harsh spotlight of the Indian media with uh, a number of assaults down here on Indian university students. Now, this is not a physical assault, but it's certainly an economic assault on on these particular students up here. Uh, This is just going to be not the sort of thing we want uh, seen on the media over there, and I'm sure that they're going to be all over this one. Indeed. There's uh, one comment from a Canadian student who uh, had paid $65,000 but reckoned he only got seven hours of training because they had no money for fuel. So, uh, unbelievable. Very interesting. We'll probably look at that one uh, in another episode or two, and we'll just keep an eye on that story and see how it goes. Uh, The last news brief that we've got here for uh, this episode is uh, concerns an aircraft with an American registration, November 17085. And what sort of aircraft is that, you might ask, Grant? And did you ask that, Grant? Yes, it's a DC-10, and it's it's the one that we talked about a few episodes back that's uh, coming over here to assist with the water bombing operations should we need them in Victoria for the fire season this year. It's here. That's correct, and it's parked down at Avalon. It's going to be based there, and from Avalon, it's going to be able to get to pretty much anywhere in Victoria within about 45 minutes. So it's arrived just in time. We had a 39-degree Celsius day today, uh, which is, yeah, quite hot. It's the hottest day we've had since the uh, notorious Black Saturday bushfires of last season. So it's arrived in time. We'll see how effective that is when they call it in, but I imagine that we'll be seeing it in use in not too long a time. There are some uh, fires raging in New South Wales, so it wouldn't be impossible for to get there, dump and come back. Yep, so uh, yeah, good to see that that's here. We just thought we'd uh, touch on that because we'd uh, covered it a few episodes back. Great to see it's here. It's saying it's got an operational radius of about 500 nautical miles, so that should get it to uh, pretty much anywhere it needs to get to within the state of Victoria. Definitely a handy thing and one other piece while we're talking about fire bombers, we've actually had our first Ericsson Sky Crane get used in anger. I believe it was up in New South Wales. One of the ones based out of Bankstown actually dumped some water on a fire, so that's the first time a Sky Crane has been used in this fire season. Yeah, they've had a few uh, bushfires already up there in New South Wales. Uh, we've had a, a pretty mild start to the summer here in Victoria, but it's uh, they've had some scorches up there in New South Wales. And in fact, even before summer started, I think they've been having some really hot weather. So uh, I think those sky cranes are going to get a real workout up there this fire season. Yeah, I'd imagine so. They, uh, we've been lucky down here. We've had a little bit of, uh, little bit of rain and few wet weekends so that's uh, that's really helped okay so that just about wraps everything up for the news this week grant uh something in a minute i can hear somebody coming can you hear that ah sounds like the posties here I thought they were on strike. Well, the email posties are never on strike, Grant. Oh, okay. We've got our special postie working just for us. Thanks to the miracle of modern technology, I've printed out a couple of uh, listener emails. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, great to uh, great to get some emails. We love getting them from the listeners, and uh, yeah, let, lets us know that you're out there. And actually, this one comes from Vince down at Point Cook, who I actually met. <laughs> and, That's right. And it kind of surprised the... and it kind of surprised me. <laughs> Vince is the famous first listener that Steve ever met. Yeah, I was kind of gobsmacked, and uh, Vince has taken the time to write in there. It says, "Good day, guys. My name is Vince, and I met Steve last Sunday, and that's actually a few weeks ago at uh, RAAF Museum Point Cook when we had the roulettes out on the uh, interactive uh, display that they had there." He says he's uh, part of the volunteer group that mainly do the announcing job at the interactive, which is when the roulettes are on, and uh, it's quite easy as they have uh, their own there in roulette number seven. And roulette number seven actually is their PR guy, whose business card I now have. Yay! Yes, and who I need to email when I have a moment. Sorry. Uh, Vince says here that uh, Steve came over and introduced himself and requested to interview the boys and looked at me with shock because I knew about the Plain Crazy podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, bah, bah. Really? That's great. That's a polite way of putting it. I mean, I'm surprised he's he's still wanting to know us after you got down and, you know, kissed his feet and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, he just uh, sums up here by saying, just to let you know that I'm a listener and I can hear the improvements as you go along. Uh, Thanks very much, Vince. And, yeah, I was gobsmacked. It's uh, nice to meet a listener who's, you know, not someone I'm related to. And... uh... No, that's really a thrill. Our second email that we've got here this week comes from George Richards, and George is over in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, that's that's really cool too because we, we're really keen to uh, promote the show across there in New Zealand and uh, get some, some more input. That's right. And uh, George was giving us a couple of pointers, some notes. Uh, one was about the... Uh Air New Zealand being the, the launch customer for the Sharklets on the A320s, and we covered that. We've also got uh, the Rotorua. You mentioned how Rotorua had the first flight direct to Sydney. Yep, we covered that one today as well. But uh, here's a new one that uh, we had no idea about, and that's that uh, as of December 3rd, the Civil Aviation Authority in New Zealand has introduced light sport aircraft in their rules. And apparently the most significant aspect of that is that it's going to allow uh, new light sport aircraft to be used for full certified training. Yeah, so um, that's something, in fact, we might actually mention that to Baz. I'm sure that would be uh, something that he'd uh, have some pretty uh, pretty good comments on. Uh, Grant, put that on the to-do list, would you please, mate? Roger that. Roger that. Okay, so George writes, Hi, I just thought I'd drop a line and say hi, and that he enjoys listening to the show. Being a professional pilot, my workmates have more often than not lost their original passion for flight. Quite common in any profession, I guess. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's probably true. He's uh, saying here, it's nice to hear the passion and interest to get in your show. Very entertaining, since I usually listen in my car or look forward uh, to the drive to and from work. Well, that's fantastic. Oh, I, uh, thought, I thought we declared that uh, listening to PCDU while driving could be dangerous to your health. Yeah, but that's only in Australia, mate. I, I don't think they've uh, legislated against it in uh, New Zealand yet. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not quite the nanny state there yet. Now, here's a really cool website. Uh, this is, I assume, George, uh, I'm assuming this is your plane, www.falco. F-A-L-C-O.co.nz. Have a look at this website, folks, and have a look at this really cool-looking aircraft that George flies around in, uh, a Falco. Now, Grant, do you know anything about this type of aircraft? Uh, only that it's making my aeroneurophycosis go nuts. That is one sexy-looking machine. Oh, I'd love to have a fly in that. Oh, yeah. Grrr. Falco.co.nz, folks. Uh, check it out. That's a that's a real nice looking plane, George. And uh, if you'd uh, you know if you'd like to uh, put some uh, tip tanks on that and fly it over here to Moorabbin, um, we'll be happy to uh, do a flight test on it for you. Yeah. I'd be happy just to be standing near it. Yeah, that's an awesome looking plane. He's got it done here in a yellow, uh, sort of a Ferrari looking uh, yellow paint scheme on it. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. And uh, as you'll notice from a couple of the photos, it is able to go inverted at least. Yes, and as Grant, as you always like to say. Life's better inverted. There you go. Uh, Retractable gear, too. It's a small aircraft, bubble canopy. 
Awesome. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's just about, uh, while, while we're drooling over that website, perhaps I should click off it so I can regain concentration. Uh, so, Do George, uh, thanks very much for writing to us, folks. Again, www.plancrazydownunder.com, and you can find all our contact details on there. Well, the last piece that we've got before we disappear for this episode is that uh, some of you may remember we did a cheeky little promo number for the guys at the Potapalooza at Oshkosh 2009. Uh, so special thanks there to Stephen Force uh, from the Airspeed podcast for helping come up with the idea that we should do it and getting it onto the show. So thanks, Steve. Really appreciated that. And uh, the unfortunate side effect of doing that is that now all the American podcasters are expecting us to show up there next year for Oshkosh 2010. They're expecting that uh, we we are to bust a gut, do whatever it takes, and get ourselves over there to uh, partake in the next Potapalooza and just generally enjoy the fun. Well, it doesn't take too much effort to make me want to do that. I'm definitely in for it if I can ever find a way to rob a bank and get the money. Steve's pretty much the same. He's trying to figure out how he can get the money. And we've just discovered that there is going to be a chartered Air New Zealand 747 flying into Oshkosh. Uh, it is going to go from Australia to Auckland, New Zealand, to LA, and then fly into Whitman Regional Field, land at Oshkosh and park there and a whole bunch of Kiwis and Aussies are going to pour off that plane and take over Oshkosh once again. It's only 4000 Australian dollars for the economy flight and includes accommodation and a whole lot of other things and Steve and I are now trying to figure out how on earth we're going to make this happen. Uh, so if anyone has any um, suggestions on how to make this happen or wants to donate and help us make it there. Yeah, it's only eight grand folks, it's not much. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, you, if every single one of our listeners invested two thousand each sorry mum yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that we can go to oshkosh for you yeah indeed so we can go and interview people hang out go to parties fly aircraft and just generally experience and bring you along with our recorders that's right yeah this isn't working is it it's not not working (laughs) sounds good though sounds good sounds great how are we going to fit this in because sarge wants us to come to farnborough within this year next year too so uh boy it's going to be a full year oh and and perth for red bull we've got to do that Mm. mate okay i think I've got the plans trains. for a couple of banks. I don't know. Maybe if we put a couple of hundred into lotto. Yes. Win, the, win a couple of lotteries. Yes. We'll just keep trying. Yeah. So uh, if you want to check out the details on that, folks, there's a couple you can look at. Uh, what have we got here? Avtours, avtours.com.au. Um, that's that's the main one. avtours.com.au. That'll give you all the details. It'll be in the show notes. We're drooling. Uh, I personally think the only way I'm going to get over there is by selling my final kidney, the, the one that Rob Mark didn't get, and um, just going over over there and camping under somebody's wing or something. I don't know. I'll have to figure a way. Oshkosh is calling, folks. we got to do it. I don't know how, but we're going to do it. So that's just about everything we have for you this week on Playing Crazy Down Under. A uh, huge thanks to those of you who've already used our tip jar. Uh, your donations are uh, really sincerely appreciated. Any donations you can make to us, we'd really appreciate. Uh, that does help us to offset our know, hosting fees and uh, getting around the place and getting interviews and uh, fuel costs, whatever. Uh, not compulsory, of course, but uh, any help you could give us, we could really use it. Indeed, we always need help. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> so show notes, as always, can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder, our our Twitter handle is PCDU and our email address is playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com our sound effects come from soundsnap.com and you can also visit our fan page grant on Facebook and you can find Steve online as Steve Vischer on Twitter and he's on Facebook as well and his blog is www.ozflyer.com that's Alpha Uniform Sierra Foxtrot Lima India Echo Romeo he says trying to read it from a distance (laughs) that's very impressive mate (laughs) 
And you can find me online as Falcon124. And uh, my blog is blog.flymefriendly.com. Yep, so, uh, yeah, that's been a really big episode there, Grant. Thanks again to Sarge Ahmed. His website, again, uh, I know we've mentioned it a few times, but it's worth mentioning again, is uh, fleetbuzzeditorial.com. Uh, well worth checking out. Well worth checking out. Uh, we really do appreciate Sarge uh, spending some time with us on the show. Thanks again to David Vanderhoof. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll uh, talk to you again next week. But in the meantime, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Uh, uh, the, uh... Okay, let's just cut it there, mate. Sorry. Uh, uh... But, yes, uh, yes, indeed. a lot of, uh, people who were quite unhappy, and we've got a, a bit of a sample here of some of the, uh, less than impressed passengers, and actually one who was, uh, quite diplomatic. What was that? I don't know. That was on your end. Somebody just Skyped you? <laughs> and Steve said that at... What was I saying? Study in. That's correct. I'm looking at Wikipedia, too. <laughs> No, I'm not looking at... I'm not, I'm not actually. See, press release that Dan sent us. You know, I hope I didn't delete that. <laughs> uh, uh, this is the BBC. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you have did it, me before we have begun the game. Don't do that. Oh, no, I'm going to get shot if I say this, but... Uh, okay, let's restart this. Okay, I'm just going to stop the recording. <sighs> That's a wrap. <laughs>